And if you would, uh, with me, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to continue this morning on the, in the series that Matt began last week, sheer Christianity, sheer meaning unadulterated, pure, and unmixed. We're looking at this summer series being one of looking at some subjects that we feel as leaders, we've been praying, would be strengthened in the church and areas of the Christian life that are very, very familiar to all of us, but we're asking God to do something again um, in a very meaningful and profound way. So I want to just launch today into this, setting a, uh, a foundation really in a sense. I mean, Matt did a great job last week of reminding us of the roots of this faith and um, just the power of this remarkable salvation and the beauty of it that we've been born into as he set the course for us last week of this series. And I want to add to that today by strengthening it with another, I guess, uh, if you would, another building block in what we want to accomplish uh, this summer. Let's look at Matthew six twenty one, a very familiar text. The Lord Jesus speaking in what is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye of the lamp is the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And then he says this, no one can serve two masters, for you want your other, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted, I love that word, to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve, and in this context, it was money. You cannot serve God and money, but he could have put any other number of subjects in there rather than money, right? The point he made was that you can't serve both. And then let's look at Colossians 1 also. Again, another very familiar text that is, I think, important to what I'm saying today. In verse 11, he says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And then he says this, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Say this with me, delivered and transferred. Those two verbs are both in that one sentence, very, very important, very important verbs for us in our lives. And then what I want to speak of Today, Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you this morning for the word of God. We thank you this morning for the privilege of gathering in your name. We thank you that all that is true is found in you. We humble our hearts, Lord, today before you, and we thank you today that by your spirit you will speak to us and that you will, Lord, build your church in a way that only you are able to do. And so we again today yield our hearts to you in faith. 
thanking you even before you have done what you will do. In Jesus' name, amen. You're all familiar with the term or the word worldview. I'm sure most of you would be able even to define it very simply as perhaps a lens, the lenses through which we view the world in which we live. That's a very apt description, very simple but apt description. And I think all of us would understand that the way we view the world in which we live directly affects the way that we live. And so how we understand this world and how we view this world then will affect the way the choices we make and the way that we live our lives. Now, if I was to ask you the rhetorical question, really, what would you say Jesus' worldview was while he was on the earth? Probably all of you would be able to answer it in some way. That's the right answer. And you would probably think it must have been, his worldview must have been the kingdom of God on the earth. It was, it's not hard to see how single-focused Jesus was while he was here. He taught continually on the kingdom. He modeled the kingdom life continually. He declared the kingdom of God's authority and supremacy in everything that he said or did or taught. And he established the kingdom through his actions. Jesus' worldview, very simply, was the kingdom of God on the earth. And we can look at the Old Testament story, and we know the fact that the overarching story of the Old Testament, besides the promise of redemption in Christ, was the establishment of God's kingdom. It was the rule and reign. It began with God dealing with men one-on-one, specifically men like Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, speaking to the prophets, speaking to David through the prophets, all of it drawing and building a picture of God's authority, the rule and reign of God, first in a man and then in a people. The kingdom of God is the, is the, is the heart of the, of the Bible story, and it's fulfilled in the redemption of Jesus Christ. Daniel spoke of a kingdom that would be unlike all earthly kingdoms in, in the book of Daniel. And he said that it would be cut from a mountain as he sees this picture of all these earthly kingdoms and this great statue, there was one now that came and destroyed those others. But it came from a quarry not hewn by human hands. A great rock that came from a quarry that was without human hands, listen, upon it. And it destroyed, ultimately, all of the other kingdoms of the world. This is the kingdom you and I have been born into. This is the kingdom that Paul was speaking of in Colossians 1 when he said we have been delivered from one kingdom and transferred into another. There are only two kingdoms. I thought Matt said this so succinctly last week and so powerfully that sometimes we want to characterize sin or we use analogies to describe the world 
when really what it is, it's, 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 it's Satan's kingdom. The kingdom of the world, the kingdom of the age that we live in is, is under the dominion and the effect of the fall. So there are only two. There are Satan's and God's. Now, here's the question that I posed to myself this week as I was praying about this. Is it possible to live in this world which is under the spell of satanic influence and to live as God's kingdom people? Of course, we would all say, yes, it must be. But it's so hard. And if I'm very honest with you, I think this is the, this is the struggle for leaders, leaders in the day in which we're living, is to lead the church in this day, in this culture, in this time, into something that is meaningfully, profoundly, purely God's heart in a world that is so ambivalent and antagonistic to everything we believe. It's possible to do this, and it is the language that the New Testament uses of exile. It's to live as sojourners. It's to live as pilgrims, Peter and the other New Testament writers said. So it is possible, but it is so difficult. It's to live in Babylon as in exile all the while knowing that it is ultimately not our home. But as we are here, we don't separate ourselves from it entirely in the sense that we are disinterested in it. As Jeremiah said to the exiles in Babylon, plant your gardens, build your homes, have your children, and, and love the city where God has placed you in exile. But don't be part of it in your hearts. We're talking about worldview. I'm talking about worldview. And I'm going to attack this from a, probably a different angle than maybe you've heard it before. I was reminded this week as I was praying, Matt wanted me to kind of tackle this subject as, as a laying it into the, into the course of where we're heading. And I thought, oh, Lord Jesus, I have taught on worldview so many times. I've taught on the kingdom so much. I've taught this church on these things so many times. One more time, will it make any difference? And I felt the Lord reminded me of a book that I read uh, a while back and that Matt actually has referred to in his teaching in a couple of times. And I pulled it up again and I began to look at it. And I felt the Lord say to me, this is the direction I want you to take this today. And so uh, I am going to do that. We know that in this world there are many worldviews that are nuances of the one overarching worldview that I said a moment ago is the satanic kingdom of darkness. But there are a lot of nuanced worldviews in that kingdom of darkness that we have been delivered from. The isms, you could say many of them are simply worldviews. Paganism, secularism, atheism, communism, religious fundamentalism, capitalism, Eastern spiritualism, all of these are a worldview that dominate the thinking of groups of people, large groups, in some cases smaller than others, that directly determine the way that they live. 
And though there might be even some good that could come from some of these worldviews, ultimately, listen, they all have their roots in the wisdom of man. They are the work of human hands that Daniel was speaking of in his prophecy. And so this summer, we're going to look at some very familiar topics. We're going to look at marriage and community and generosity and prayer and parenting and mission and witness and worship, for example. But here's the point, though. If we once again rehash, now listen to my heart, very familiar texts and give you again the same thoughts and the same concepts of truth, but our hearts are not moved, our lives will not change. And worse than that, the glory of God will not be manifest as he has intended for our generation. Our generation today on the earth has a mission and a calling. And if we don't have our hearts moved, then we will not be able to live this calling and mission out. And I've entitled today's teaching very simply, Understanding with Our Hearts. Understanding with Our Hearts. I want to share with you a quote from this book. The author is James K.A. Smith. The book is called Desiring the Kingdom. Listen to this quote. I think it's important as the beginning precursor of what I want to say. He says, being a disciple of Jesus is not primarily a matter of getting the right ideas and doctrines and beliefs into your head in order to guarantee proper behavior. Rather, it is a matter of being the kind of person who loves rightly, who loves God and neighbor and is oriented to the world by the primacy of of that love. It is not primarily a matter of getting right ideas and doctrines and thoughts and beliefs into our head in order to somehow hopefully guarantee proper behavior, but it is a matter of being the kind of person, and this is it, who loves rightly. There's the word devoted. So the goal of this series that we are embarking on is not to just to get us to think rightly again about marriage. You've heard thousands of sermons on marriage. You've been to thousands of classes on marriage. You've probably been to seminars on marriage. You know everything that we could possibly say. It's not just to get you to think rightly or about community or about generosity or about parenting. But it, my heart and our heart is to get us to love rightly. And I'm going to define what I mean by that. To love what God loves, listen, the way that God loves. That's the worldview that we're after. So living out a kingdom worldview, listen, is not just a matter of building a system of Christian knowledge that defines that worldview. That's, you can study that easily yourselves online anytime. Tons of material out there that's excellent. And I'm not saying it's not a good thing to do. That's not simply what it is, though. It's a matter of developing a Christian know-how that intuitively understands the world in the light of the fullness of the gospel and through the lenses of the kingdom of God. Are you understanding this? I'm praying, Lord, move us beyond head knowledge. And many of you will sit in this room right now and you'll say, I've, I, I know all this head knowledge, but it hasn't changed my life one bit in this area. It's because your heart hasn't been moved yet. 
the heart has to be moved. And in some cases, in some sense, the heart is moved because only God can move the heart, but it's also because we decide to let God move the heart. So the question is, how can we train ourselves to give our hearts to the right things? How can we train ourselves to give our hearts to the right things? Jesus says this. He says, where your heart is, there's your treasure. He doesn't say that our beliefs will determine our treasure. He says our affections, our heart, our gut, our inner being determines our treasure. In other words, we love, listen now, listen carefully, we love what we have given our hearts to. We treasure what we have given our hearts to. Not so much that we give our hearts to what we love, but we actually love what we've already given our hearts to. Subtle, but that's what Jesus is saying. What you love, that's what you're going to give yourself to. That's where your treasure is. What do you love? Where is your love directed? What is the aim of your love? And I'm going to tell you there is a battle for your love. There is a battle for your heart that you live in every single day. And most of us are completely unaware of it. And most of us are being molded and our love is being directed in a way by, by forces that we are not even conscious of. But we want to be and we need to become conscious now of those forces. The word that he uses in his book is the word liturgy. And we're familiar with that word, and for most of us, it simply has, an, has a religious connotation of liturgical activity that would take place in, a, in the sense of worship in, in a, a religious setting. But that word is a powerful world, word that can help us understand what I'm talking about today. When we think of it only in religious ways, we're, we're missing the point. One definition, if you look it up in the Webster's Dictionary of, of liturgy, is, it is a repertoire of ideas phrases or observances. Ideas, phrases, or observances, which repeated again, listen, repeated again and again become more than just a neutral experience, but they actually begin to form our thinking and our identity. You get your thinking caps on? Are you hearing me? It's a repertoire of ideas and, and observances and, and repeated and phrases repeated, doing something again and again and again more, that, be, that brings us to that experience being more than just neutral, but now it actually has, be, has become formative. And so in his book, Desiring the, Desiring the Kingdom, Smith says that there are very powerful cultural liturgies that shape us every single day we are alive. And that actually have, for the most part, most of us would have to see formed our thinking and even maybe our identity. And so when we preach identity in Christ, it goes into your ears and it goes out the other ear and you, and you know that it's true, but it doesn't ever affect anything. Because the cultural liturgy has so gripped your heart and mind that you've pretty much just assumed, now this is who I really am. 
But God says, no, let my kingdom, let my truth, let my life begin to form you and give you what you need to be to understand who you are. And in his book, he says that these powerful cultural liturgies that shape us, there are three primary that he looks at in this book. The mall, the stadium, and the university. And he does an excellent job of breaking all three of them down and describing how through liturgy, repeated observances, phrases, and actions, they have molded um, uh, the human, the Americans for the most part, Western uh, civilization, with these repeated cultural liturgies. We will see that there are identity-forming practices that are subtly, subtly being ingrained in us through these primary liturgical practices. Of course, what does the mall represent? Consumerism, materialism, envy, you know, everything, desire, and all the, the, the covetousnesses. What does the stadium represent? Devotion and, and sacrifice that is not of God in many ways. Not to say that all of these are evil. That's not the point. It's not what he's saying nor what I'm saying. He's saying these things have shaped, though, and, of course, the university is a place of religion. A secular university is a place where ideology is very, very powerfully blasted day by day by day to shape and form thinking. These are places of worship in America. These are places where men and women and young men and women give devotion to. And so they are shaped through repeated practice of observances and thoughts and ideas. They are shaped by these cultural liturgies. See, the liturgy, the concept of liturgy is both a heart and a mind issue because it trains us by, by putting our bodies through a regimen of repeated practices, that the aim of which is to get hold of our heart and direct our love toward a desired object. And so you can walk into a university one way and walk out four years later a completely different person. And by the time a young woman or young girl is 13 years old and she's consumed with the mall, what it represents, by the time she's 20 or 21, she could be a completely different person than she was eight years earlier because it's shaped her. For us to lose ourselves in, in the stadium affairs. I can remember when I was a young man before I was a Christian, I lived from Friday till I lived for Friday so the weekend would come and I could be involved in sports. Playing and watching, that's all I wanted to do. It was an idol. And it's still something that can grip my heart easily. I'll talk about that more in a moment. But before we articulate a worldview as Christians, I want to just say we worship, whether in the mall as human beings or in our case as believers, we worship God together in the church. 
And I want to tell you that before I understood, now listen to me in this, before I understood any doctrine or any theology, I was on my knees worshiping God when I first got saved. I didn't understand one bit of doctrine nor one bit of theology, which I love. I was on my knees, tears running down my face, my hands lifted, and I was worshiping before I understood anything because my love and my, my heart was aimed towards my love of God. Before I ever thought of what was morally acceptable and what is immoral, before I ever thought of that, I received forgiveness, and I knew forgiveness. My heart was moved by the love, listen, by the love of God. And I responded to that love with my devotion. Before I ever worked through the theology of Christ's two natures, Fully God, fully man, truly God, truly man. Before I ever thought about the Chalcedian Creed or Nicene Creed or any of the creeds and studied them and looked at them, I was at the Lord's table thanking God for the privilege of being a son, a child of God. You hear my heart in this? That's the kind of people that we are. That's the kind of beings that we are. Before we were anything, we are loving desiring, in a sense, liturgical beings. And we don't inhabit the, word, the world simply as thinkers or cognitive machines. We have affection and a heart of love. And so really, it is true to say that every single human being on the face of the earth is a worshiper. Isn't that true? They worship Something or someone. Every single one does. And if it's atheism, ultimately, it's probably either science or themselves. Everyone does. I might have already passed where I wanted to go. I think I did. This is the slide I wanted you to see. So the core claim of this book that I'm talking about today is that liturgies, whether sacred or secular, shape and constitute our identities by forming our most fundamental desires and our most basic attunement to the world. In short, liturgies make us certain kinds of people, and what defines us is what we love. Which direction is your love aimed? So the answer to my previous question, is it possible to train ourselves? And how do we train and to give ourselves to the right things? The answer to that question is, it is by giving ourselves repeatedly. Listen now. It is by giving ourselves repeatedly to the things which are good and holy and true, wherein we experience their value and the blessing of grace that accompanies them. It is by giving ourselves repeatedly to those things which are good and holy and true, wherein we will experience their value and the blessing of the grace that accompanies our giving ourselves to those things. And we can desire those realities we can increase our desire for those realities 
We can increase a disposition toward that which is of God and not of the world through repeated practices in the areas of the kingdom that are most important. And you might say to yourself, isn't that what Mormons do? Don't they just do what they're told to do? They ride their bikes around? And, or what the J, JWs do? They knock on doors? I'm not talking about self-discipline. I'm talking about grace-inspired obedience, chosen obedience. And it has a goal of conformity to Christ. And it can only happen by the indwelling spirit. So it's not just disciplining yourself to do the right things. It's chosen obedience, yes. But it's accompanied by grace and by the power of the Spirit. And as we give ourselves continually and repeatedly to these things, our hearts are affected by grace and our devotion and our love for Christ grows. And the kingdom becomes increasingly the view through which we view the world, the lens through which we view the world. John Wimber used to say that the Christian life is better caught than taught. If I wanted to teach you about the horrors that men and women endured on the slave ships as they were brought from Africa to the United States, I could sit down with you and give you all sorts of information on what took place on those slave ships. Or, I don't know how many of you have seen this movie, Amistad. Have you seen the movie Amistad? Or I could sit with you and watch the movie, movie Amistad. And I guarantee you that your heart would be moved by that movie to the degree that it would probably change the way that you think to some degree. Whereas you could sit down and, and read all of the material that I could ever give you and it may not affect your heart one bit. Because we see through the eyes of God, through, through, the, through the heart that is God's heart, that movie's powerful if you haven't seen it, watch it. We see through the eyes of God's heart and it moves us towards God. It draws us to God's heart. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Yeah. We, we have, see, I love Reformed theology, I do, but it's so intellectual sometimes. And there's a battle within this, this whole Reformed thinking to where we're realizing more and more and more that we're, we're losing something. It might be what Jesus was speaking of in Revelation 2 to the church of Ephesus. You've left your first love. You're doing all of these things right. You've got all of this right, but you've lost something that is so vital to your well-being. And that is the devotion and the love, the simplicity of your heart being yeah. moved. Yeah. So you can have it all right and be wrong. You can have all your theology and doctrine absolutely right and miss the very heart of God. We know how powerful the, the present cultural liturgy is, and I'm going to land here in a moment. For example, we know that, that in the eyes of the world, sex sells. And it's all, in almost everything at some level. I remember a Carl's Jr. commercial from two or three years ago where this beautiful girl who has like uh, eye black, like she's playing football and shoulder pads and very little else on, is eating a hamburger. 
Now you tell me, what the heck is that about? One thing. It's appealing to the young men or maybe older men through one clear liturgical move. Repeat, that commercial was on over and over and over again. Drawing your heart, drawing your heart toward hamburger? I doubt it. Although I do remember it was Carl's Jr., don't I? What were they doing with their marketing? They're tapping into the erotic core of young men and maybe not so young and channeling their eros desire towards that which they wanted, which we know that's a false idol. It's a substitute being offered by the world, the liturgy of the world. It's a counterfeit that can only be fulfilled in covenant love in marriage. But it's drawing the hearts of young people, young men, towards whatever that is. And they do it with women all the time, perfume, clothing. Everything that they market is, is, to, is to appeal to that desire, that, that thing for young women to be desirous for their beauty, their outward beauty, with no thinking whatsoever of inward, inward beauty, which is the kingdom. And their liturgy is, in their marketing is effective because they know what drives young women to be sexy and attractive and appealing. And what they believe will give them identity and fulfillment, which we know it will not, because beauty fades, but the inner beauty does not. And it's interesting, I was thinking about what is the, what is the common way that the church tries to deal with these appetites in young men and in young women? We try to teach young men and young women to deal with these by getting their brains to somehow trump their organs and bring their passions into submission with the intellect. Now, I'm not against classes, and I've done a ton of them, and I think they're good to go through book studies with young men or young women and address these things, but it's really like trying to pour water on your head to put fire out in your heart. The issue is the heart. You ever try to change the heart of a young, young person, of a teen? Get them to do what you want? You can't. You can try to force it. You can try to manipulate it. You can try to demand it. But only God can do it. Only God can ultimately grip their heart. But see, if they begin to understand, if they truly want to love God, if they truly want to know God, if they begin to give themselves to the things that are good and holy and true repeatedly again and again and again, their heart's direction of their love will be towards him and their heart will be moved. Do you believe that? It's true. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. He will love the one and hate the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both. He said, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. The eye was interchangeable in Jewish literature with, with the heart. It is a lamp, listen, that reveals the, the quality or the state of a person's inner being, inner life. It's, he's talking about how you view things. Jesus is saying if everything you see is through the lenses of this cultural liturgy that is, 
moving your heart and forming your heart in a way that is, is, is under the satanic influence of that kingdom, you're, you're going to miss what it means to be a child of God in, 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 in enjoyment and in fulfillment and in effectiveness for him. What is the direction of our heart, Jesus was asking. What is the direction of your heart? And, you know, as is, as is true with everything that Jesus asks, we always have to be brutally honest with ourselves. It takes some self-reflection. It takes some time of sitting and reflecting. What is the direction of my heart? Lord, show me so I'm honest with myself. It's so easy to be religious, isn't it? It's so easy to, to avoid the deeper issues of our hearts and go only to our brains, develop doctrine and theology as Christians and write practices and do all these and, and, and miss the heart of the whole issue. Because it takes great vulnerability and honesty before God. The life that we're after is developed through a lifestyle. Please hear this. The life that we are praying for and hoping for in our church and in our individual lives is developed through a lifestyle of repeated actions that are kingdom-focused. Kingdom liturgies. But we have to define them, and we're going to. They are often simple acts of repeated obedience, acts that are directed in love toward God, toward his church, and toward a needy world. Repeated, simple acts of obedience that are acts of love directed towards God, the church, and the world. They are conscious decisions that we make to cultivate a heart that is directed and given toward an unseen kingdom and an unseen king. And in his book, and I want to read a fairly large, longer section of it, so please bear with me of what he says here. He describes one of these actions this way. Listen now. And it's this. It's the importance of attending church every Sunday morning. Listen to what he writes, and just let this sink in in light of what I've just said. He said, the rather mundane fact that people even show up on a Sunday morning is, however, an indicator of something fundamental. That a people, I love this, a people has gathered in response to a call. Whenever we gather for public worship, it is because we have been summoned. That is what the word church means, ecclesia, called out. It is not a voluntary society of those whose chief concern is to share or to build a community or to enjoy fellowship or to have even moral instruction for their children, as good as all those things are. Rather, it is a society, I'm not even on that, that's, that's up too soon. That's not what I'm reading. I'll put it up when I'm ready for it. Thanks, Matt. Rather, it is a society of those who have been chosen, redeemed, called, 
justified and are being sanctified until one day they will be glorified. The very fact, this is so good, that we gather says something and it implicitly trains our thinking in a way. Gathering indicates that Christians are called from the world, from their homes, from their families, to be constituted into a community capable of praising God like we did this morning. The church is constituted as a new people who have been gathered from the nations to remind the world that we are in fact one people. Gathering, therefore, is an eschatological act because it's a foretaste of the unity of the communion of the saints. And there is a certain hint of scandal here, he says, of a reality that cuts against the grain of our late modern liberal sensibilities. For as we are making, this is so beautiful, as we are making our way to worship, not everyone is coming. Our neighbor might, his home might still be quiet and dark. Someone down the street, he might already be mowing his lawn. We might have to walk softly through the dorm hall because many of our peers won't emerge for hours. We may even be leaving family members in our own home who don't answer this call to worship, this summons to gather. Since we on our own don't have the inclination or ability to answer the call, our response is already in gathering is already a sign of God's redemption and regeneration at work. We need each other, the encouragement of each other to even be able to do this. But the neighbors and strangers we pass on the way also remind us that God's peculiar people is also a chosen people, called out from among the nations, graced, elected to be a renewed people for this still sleeping world. Isn't that beautiful? It's powerful. It puts my, my, I can see it all. How many times have I driven down the street and everybody else is still sleeping or they're out walking their dogs or they're running? Nothing wrong with any of that. But it's just, no, that's, I'm unique. Or if you leave your home and your husband is still in bed or your wife or your rebellious teenager. You're, because, you're leaving them because you are called out and you understand who you are and you're giving yourself to it again and again and again and again and it becomes increasingly the identity that you have. And the re- here's the reality, and you love it. You love it because you know the value of it. And then he says this, and we can put it up now for me, Matt, please. Thank you. And he says, we've hardly done anything yet, and I'm landing here. We've hardly done anything yet. All we did was show up, and we heard the call to worship, but already we've glimpsed what is implicit in this action. Embedded in our gathering in response to this call is an implicit understanding of what is required for human flourishing. To be human is to be called. But called to what? Gathered for what? The congregation gathers in response to a call to worship, which is the fundamental vocation of being human. God is calling out and constituting a people who will look peculiar in this broken world because they have been called to be, a renewed, to be a renewed image bearers of God, to take up and, remem- and, and re- re-embrace our creational vocation, now empowered by the Spirit to do so. So this is just not a call to do something religious, something to be merely added to our normal life. It is a call to become human 
to take up the vocation of being fully and authentically human and to be a community and of people who, who image God to the world. This call to worship is an echo of God's word that called humanity into being in Genesis 1. It's the call of God that brought creation into existence, and it's echoed in God's call to worship that brings together this new creation of God. And our calling as new creatures in Christ is a restatement of Adam and Eve's calling to be God's image bearers to and for the world. Something as mundane and as simple as just gathering together and making the decision to bring ourselves and our families to church. Not to be good Christians. Not because the pastors and the elders want us there. But because my heart's aim is in love toward God. And because I understand who I am. And I understand what this is all about because my worldview is kingdom. Because I have not let the, the cultural liturgy shape my concept of church. The cultural liturgy has shaped our concepts of church. And so it's like no big deal. Take it or leave it. Well, can I be a good Christian? Can I love God at home? Absolutely you can, but, but not in obedience to the way that God's called you to. So how is this done in marriage? How is this done in parenting? How is this done in giving and generosity? How is this done in prayer and witness? How is this done? Well, that's what we want to explore in this series. Repeated acts of obedience, liturgical acts of obedience that are kingdom liturgies. It's a call to an uncommon love for the Lord Jesus in his church that will become radically life-altering as we give ourselves repeatedly to these acts of love and obedience. There's a faith element in this. Always in God. Whatever God calls us to always has faith in it. Repeated acts of obedience are acts of faith, believing that God will use it in grace to establish us. And our worldview will change. Rather than being continually influenced and formed by these cultural liturgies, we will be transformed by God's kingdom, life, and power. So it's a matter of learning to understand with our hearts, not just with our minds. Now, when I go home today, I will probably watch a baseball game and then in the evening watch a movie because I love baseball and I love movies. And I want to tell you there is nothing wrong with that. But if my heart is being shaped by those things to the extent that it becomes now an idol in my heart somehow, or it begins to form my understanding of truth and of life, or I'm not happy unless my team wins, or the movies that I watch are shaping my thinking. Are you understanding what I'm saying? I have to be aware. So it's not as though we're withdrawing from the world. It's not what I'm espousing. I'm simply saying we have to understand what's important with our hearts, not just our minds. Give, up, give yourself to the things of God, brothers and sisters, repeatedly. And we're going to discover how we do that in Jesus' name. Amen.